Hello, everybody, and welcome back to DDK Pod, the podcast where three guys who founded an IT company talk about IT industry news and topics that interest us. My name is Julian Day, and with me, as always, are my two co-hosts, Jatinder Candola and Will Dalton. How are you guys? I'm good, thank you. Yeah, good, thanks. Good, good. Okay, uh, news first then, chaps, as always. Uh, Jatinder, do you want to go first with your news story this week? No. No, he doesn't. He doesn't. <laughs> Will, do you want to go first with your news story? <laughs> go on then. <laughs> so always good for its dripping sarcasm. The Register.com last week published an article about uh, UK pilot union warnings that a disaster could happen again with the fabled 737 MAX, even after its latest software patch. I'm not sure how they deliver software patches to uh, 737 MAXs, but anyway, it's had the latest one. Worth recapping on this one because it's important. I didn't, I haven't fully appreciated the context. So MCAS, which is the Maneuvering Characteristic Augmentation System, that's a mouthful, software system intended to counteract the effect of, of hanging bigger, more powerful engines off the Boeing airframe. The new engines give the airliner more range and efficiency, but also different flying characteristics from previous models. So that's really important. Why? Because you have to train the pilots in a new way to fly, and that would be massively expensive for airlines. And another reason the approach is important is because you are relying on software to interpret the actual characteristics of the actual plane flying in the actual sky to what the humans expect the plane should be doing based off their training. So fine when all is stable and predictable, but what happens when things go wrong? Well, You've seen this, what happens when things go wrong. And as uh, and has the software predicted every eventuality of how things could go wrong? Uh, this makes me nervous because they did this for, for cost reasons. What makes the article relatively funny is they published all the different flight codes across all the airlines that the, that the uh, 737 MAX flies under in case you want to avoid booking to fly on <laughs> one. <laughs> it's interesting what you say about how they deliver it to a plane, I wonder. I wonder if someone just sort of yanks an RJ45 cable out and shoves it into the undercarriage somewhere or something. Yeah. Well, do you think they just update it as you're flying, <laughs> you know, reboots? <laughs> Press this button to, to restart this aeroplane, yeah. Yeah, uh, over, the, over the air updates. <laughs> Literally over the air updates, yeah. So so what's the uh, upshot then? Are they, uh, this latest patch is going through, is it the FAA or something like that in the States? I think they do. Oh, fuck it. They just, fuck it. They're going to fly and see what it does. <laughs> really? Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> It's a good job nobody's going on holiday at the moment then, I suppose, but <laughs> blimey, yeah. Yeah, read the article before you go on holiday and avoid booking on it. On a, on a 737 MAX, yeah. Yeah. God, it's got, it's got to cost them, I mean, I don't know how much, I suppose the whole aviation industry is screwed at the moment with COVID-19, isn't it? But Pretty it's much. got to have cost them a lot of money, this. I mean, in the billions, I'd guess, but I don't know. But that, but it's the scary thing, isn't it? Is that actually the, the pilot flying the plane is not actually flying the plane. He's flying the software. Yeah. And the software is flying the plane. So you've got this layer in between. How can that software know every permutation of every characteristics that's when you're flying through the plane? It cannot. I watched a fascinating video the other day on YouTube, which was titled, Can a Civilian Land a Commercial Airliner? <laughs> and the way they did it was by twiddling a few knobs. Literally, that's all they had to do. So they had someone talking them through how to program the autopilot. And that was all they had to do. They didn't even have to touch the, the stick or anything. They had to touch the throttles mm. to throttle the plane back when it landed so that it would stop. But other than that, yeah, they, they just twiddled a few knobs. It was just turn onto this heading, right, this heading, and this heading. And then there was like a beacon on the runway that the plane locked onto. And it was just incredible. Didn't they just hit the land button? 
Pretty much, yeah. I mean, you you have to give it a bunch of stuff like um, pressures and and uh, weather conditions and all sorts of things. But yeah, plane, plane does it all for you. Amazing, really. You just don't realise we're in the hands of the machines. This is it, isn't it? I mean, the pilots, the skills of the pilots are now being handed over or taken over by by the software. So actually, yeah. it's not a pilot anymore, is it? It's an it's an operator. Well, I guess you still need one on there to deal with unforeseen circumstances and to be able to do it manually if it all goes wrong. Do the announcement when you get on the plane, you know, hello, it's Captain speaking. <laughs> the I will not be flying your plane. <laughs> we are currently cruising at a height of uh, me, you know. I think they have to send them to vocal coaching to get that voice right. <laughs> anyway, uh, sorry, we've, we've gone on on that story for too long. Chatinda, do you want to do your story? So my story is about a hardware failure that took down the Tokyo Stock Exchange for a whole day. Awesome. Yeah. It's apparently the third largest stock exchange in the world. And some kind of hardware failure happened. I'm not sure what exactly. And the automatic backup failed to kick in. So the system, which is called Arrowhead, was about to start processing orders uh, for a stock exchange that is worth $6 trillion. Mm. And yeah, it didn't happen. And it was down for a whole day. And it's the the longest ever outage the system's had and since it's been fully electronic trading floor since 1999. So yeah, it was interesting story. You'd expect that they'd have like three or four different type of backup um, systems that would come in if the second one failed. But yeah. I wonder if it was on a cloud platform and if so, which one? Mm. Or whether it was their own hardware hosted on-prem. That would be interesting to find out, wouldn't it? And then would they release the details or have Microsoft or <laughs> Amazon blackmail or <laughs> bribe them not to release the details? Yeah, no, that, that is interesting. I guess with the amount of algorithmic trading that goes on these days where it's the computer trading, but we're back to computers doing humans' jobs again. Mm. But yeah, where the amount of trading that's done these days is done in milliseconds by algorithms, that must have been a staggering amount of money that was lost there or a staggering amount of trades that were lost anyway. Well, is, it, is it New York, London, Tokyo? Is that the is that the order? I think it is, isn't it? I'm pretty sure New York is number one. Um, I'm guessing yeah, London. Maybe it's Chinese Hang Seng or big one in Hong Possibly. Kong. Am I right? Six trillion dollars though. Sorry, Hong Kong. Yeah, I don't know. They're big. Yeah, I, I could be wrong. Anyway, so on the subject of failure, so my my subject's also about a failure. It's not Apple this time, Will. Sorry. So I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna rinse Microsoft this week because there was a massive failure story that they had in the last couple of weeks around AAD as your Active Directory, which went down and took out an enormous amount of uh, stuff on their cloud platform Azure. It's an interesting story in the sense that it showed quite how much AAD, which is a system that allows you to authenticate with Microsoft's cloud platform for anyone who's not sure what it is, basically does all your sort of credential stuff and, and proves that you are who you say you are and what you've got access to and all that kind of stuff. So AAD went down and it just shows how much it's become almost like a single point of failure for Microsoft's platform because it cannot be allowed to fail because if it does, the results are pretty catastrophic. In America, while this outage was going on, only 17% of authentication requests actually succeeded. In Europe, it was a lot higher. In Australia, it went down to about 37%. So massive, massive failure. Now, what's good about this story is that Microsoft, uh, you've got to give them credit for this. They do release some very detailed information on what actually happened and why. And the root cause was a particularly brilliantly named bit of software. The Azure AD backend uses a service called the Safe Deployment Process, which is an actual system that they've engineered to safely deploy their AAD software in order to make sure everything works properly. Would you guys care to hazard a guess as to which bit went wrong in this case? It was the Safe Deployment Process, which is not safe. 
They use this system of concentric rings. It's a bit like layers of an onion to try and work out which environments they're going to deploy to. And you're, it's supposed to deploy to the, the first ring first, which is the, the sort of pre-production environment and test rig and all that stuff. And what ended up happening in this case was there was a bug in the deployment system itself, which meant that an unstable update was pushed out to all of the rings simultaneously, including production, mm, wow. which is a pretty big howler, to be honest. So yeah, they pushed out an unstable update. It went all the way through to production as well as everything else. And then because the other environments were all tainted with that same update, it then became very difficult to revert. So they couldn't do a annual rollback. Oh, sorry, an automated rollback. So they were trying to update their Azure Active Directory service. Correct. That other people use and then their update. Well, they were what they were trying to do was push a release candidate, so a potential version of the software to the test rig, effectively. Yeah, sure. But as part of their release process, they were going through the various different, or were meant to be going through the various different environments. Correct. Yeah. And the automated deployment process, the safe deployment process, as they've called it, it ended up pushing the this, this release candidate to everything <laughs> instead, including production. Not safe as in... No, I'm not safe agile or anything like that, no. <laughs> Although it did fail fast. Yeah. But anyway, so yeah, amazing, amazing story, really. They've uh, they managed to take everything out and it just shows how when CICD and stuff like that goes wrong, it can have a pretty catastrophic update, uh, update literally a catastrophic update, a, a pretty catastrophic impact. So what's, what's interesting about that service is it's not just for services or people to authenticate to use then Azure services. It's used across all other cloud platforms as well. I know our client uses it for authenticating users to then start to use Amazon services. Yep, yep. So it has become the kind of de facto authentication service across the cloud platform for good or bad. Yeah. And, and it's therefore it's become, for Microsoft at least, it's become a real single point of failure for their business. Because if it goes down, as it did in this case, the impact is just absolutely massive. It just rolls across everything. I wonder who did that. I wonder who pressed the deploy button. <laughs> if he's still with them. <laughs> right. So that's the news then, chaps. So we're going to go into the main topic for this week. And in fact, we're going to have a quick chat very, very briefly about the series that we're putting together. So we're going to have three episodes of DDK Pod in a row, which are talking about ethics. First one is going to be around the ethics of working in IT businesses and the ethics of IT companies and what they need to do in terms of how they treat their workers. The second episode, which will come in a couple of weeks time, is going to be around ethical trading and retail. So how you can make sure that you're ethical in the way that you interact with technology and the consumption of technology devices. And the final episode will be around whether it's even possible to be good in the modern world or whether a bit of hypocrisy is unavoidable because these days supply chains being the way they are, can you really be good when it comes to consuming tech? Anyway, those are topics for another time. Today's is around ethical working. So the first thing that I wanted to talk about really in this space was something that I've experienced a few times, but it came up as a big news story this week. Crunch in the games industry is, I think, where we'll start and, and generally just having to work crazy, crazy hours and how ethical that is. Uh, there's a company called CD Projekt Red. I'm probably murdering the pronunciation of that. They're a per <laughs> Polish studio. Say it again. Say it again. CD Projekt Red. I think it's Projekt. It's better. It's better the second time. I'm sure Polish people out there are just wanting to kill me at this point. Dot com. Dot com. Uh, no, 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 it's not. No, no, it's not, not .com. No, they're a games developer. The company name is CD Projekt Red and or Project Red. They're a critical darling. They developed a video game, very famous series of video games called The Witcher series. But the mm. most successful one of those by far was uh, The Witcher 3, The Wild Hunt, which was released in 2015. And it was it's one of the best received video games that's ever been made. 
And they've then covered themselves in glory by following up with some really great downloadable content that was very cheaply priced. So they're a they're a real darling of the industry, basically. And they they made some headway, uh, some headways. They made some um, headlines recently by saying we are not going to do crunch. And crunch is the term in the video game industry for working crazy hours in the run up to delivering a deliverable. In this case, a video game. So. People working, you know, there have been reports of people working 80-hour weeks and stuff like that in some companies like uh, Rockstar and EA. And CD Projekt Red came out and said, we're not going to do this because we don't think it's ethical. That was until they delayed their game three times in a row, I think it was. (laughs) Because they weren't doing it. And it came down to the crunch. Now they really, really want it to come out in November because, and so do their (laughs) investors, uh, and so does everybody else because the hype around their new game, Cyberpunk 2077, is massive and it does look incredible it has to be said but they have now gone back on effectively gone back on their word as sad as that is to say because i'm a big fan of theirs as well and uh, i'm certainly a fan of their product and they have decided to scrap the ethical bit and go for it and basically say okay you guys do need to do some crunch now we don't know how much how many extra hours they're being asked to work whether it's the kind of stuff that is just shattering people's lives like it has been in other games developers but it's interesting isn't it that when something like this needs to be pushed out of the door there's a a position that says okay well we're going to have to budge on our ethics a little bit and do something that's probably a little bit unethical but we'll try and bring the people with us and and get them to do it and i thought it was a good story to start with because i I don't know about you guys i'm sure you have but i've certainly experienced this so in in our industry it isn't called crunch but i've had periods in my career especially when i was younger when i was a grad and i'd come into the industry where i was working i was coming coming into the office at 8 30 in the morning and not leaving until probably 11 30 at night and doing that for long periods i think my longest period of doing those kind of hours was about nine months i remember times when i had to work an entire bank holiday weekend, including the the actual bank holiday itself, in order to try and get stuff done, and that wasn't seen as unusual or or difficult. So it's a good place to start, I think. Ethically, it opens up a lot of questions around working in IT and the ethics of all of that. I don't know what you guys think. I suppose it's the question: is being ethical showing intent? Do you know what I mean? And that you're thinking about it and thinking about the welfare of your of your of the people in your company and trying it experimenting with things that you think are better for the people that work for you or work with you? Or is it that you stick with it when things get tough? Because that sounds like the example that you gave. So I I think credit to them for a start that they've tried it and they thought, well, let's try and be ethical. Let's try and make the lives of the people that work for us better. And remember, they're also people sometimes like working long hours, especially if you really enjoy your job. You know, they, they like to do that. So maybe there's something in that. So they've tried it and then shit's hit fan. And they said, oh, well, actually, I think all hands to the pump. Let's go for it. And maybe they're not ditching it entirely. I don't know. Maybe they for this particular release, they're just saying, well, come on, guys, let's just, let's try. And then we'll go back to Le Crunch. Le, Cr- it's Le-, Le Crunch is a French thing. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I think I may have slightly chosen my words poorly, actually, because I, I said they've ditched their ethics. I don't think they have at all. I think you're right, Will, mm. that, that it is very much a case that they've, they've sort of said, well, we really need to try and meet this deadline. And another point that you made there that was right is that some people want to do it. So an argument that is often trotted out by games developers in particular is that people love this industry. People are really passionate. And it's true because I do know people who've worked in the games industry, programmers who've worked in the games industry who 
have subsequently left the games industry because of the working conditions and then ended up on two and a half times, three times more money doing a far less stressful job with far less hours. But they, they, they're they still upset that they've left the games industry because people love video games and they want to work on them. Mm, yeah. But there's also a question of, is it is it a case that it's it's not ethical if people are willing to do it? I think that's an interesting angle as well. It's not ethical if people in a in the so-called leadership team, and I hate that term, leadership team, because it implies that they're leaders. It, you do know what I mean? If, if senior management are saying, you have to do this, if people want to do it because they're passionate about it, then is that so bad? Exactly. So it's a... It's not a, a thing that's isolated to video games development either. There was a, a very interesting article that I came across, another medium.com one, where uh, there was an example of one employee who was working absolutely insane hours, left his child inside a hot car instead of dropping him off at daycare. And the, they, they, they hastened to add, the child lost consciousness but later recovered. Oh, right. Good. <laughs> Thank God, obviously. But it highlights the shocking reality of what can happen when you're sleep deprived and when you're having to pull these kind of mad hours and stuff. And their sort of takeaway was that balance matters. Mm. So it's having a balance between, I guess, your ethics and your need to achieve as a business. Yeah. That's up to the individual, though, isn't it, to do that? I mean, you, otherwise you're in nanny state, aren't we? I, d I don't know. I mean, it's an interesting one. Do you, is it ethical for a company to say to people, restrict your hours, this is harming you, and, and being observant of people that are getting themselves into that position because they're so passionate about something? Or is it up to the individual to take care of themselves? And this is maybe where a free country, democracy, and all the rest, blah, 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 kicks in. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's, we're individuals. We need to be responsible for our children. <laughs> I think that responsibility does always lie with the individual. It's a choice at the end of the day. Um, nobody's really got a gun to their, anybody's head to say that you have to do this. But then at the same time, what's normal? What kind of in company are you working in? What is the expectation of that company? It may not be part of your actual contract, but it might be a culture there. It might be part of the industry, um, such as gaming, as Julian said. But it all comes down to time, cost, cost or quality. So they need to make a choice in terms of uh, what do they want to aim for and what needs to be sacrificed. Yeah, it's good what you were saying there, actually, Jatin, because the, in the games industry, I think it is there is a gun to people's head in some cases. And I think mm. we can probably all agree that that's not very ethical. So some yeah. organizations have been caught out. A literal gun. People. Not a literal gun, <laughs> a metaphorical gun, but basically it might as well be because these people obviously have families to support all that jazz. And when some of these publishers have said, you need to do this crunch, you need to do these extra hours, it's been mandatory. So it's been on pain of losing your job if you don't do it. So it's not really a choice for the individual in everybody's case. And I think certainly, I, I guess my experience was that, as you said, it was an organizational culture thing. So nobody was saying to you, you have to do these hours. But your chances of getting promotion or being well regarded within the company were nil if you if you didn't do these extra hours. I'm not sure what you guys found in the early parts of your career, but it's so long ago I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well I suppose you were riding a horse and trap to work, weren't you? Exactly. Yeah. We didn't have computers. I was playing with my abacus. <laughs> Coding on an abacus, yeah. yeah. But I was doing it like silly hours. <laughs> it's because everything took so long. 
One one zero one zero zero. Oh no, I've gone wrong. <laughs> oh no, no. Back to the magnetic tape. So yeah, similar to yourself, I work for similar types of companies. Uh, I've experienced that as you're starting off in your career, you're just expected to make some choices in terms of if you want to get somewhere, you need to put the hours in and you need to really kind of dedicate your time to the company and, and to, to getting stuff done. You're cheap labor at the end of the day and you're quite bright because you come out of university with a degree you're quite enthusiastic about the big kind of corporate world as well so it, it's a perfect storm almost in terms of you've got somebody who wants to to succeed and, and prove themselves and you've got a big company that wants to, to get the most out of people so yeah i think that is something that i've experienced uh, similar to yourself julian and i'm sure lots of people have experienced but at the same time I had good people around me to, to say that, to give me the advice that if you carry on doing this throughout your whole career, say choice you're making, you, you're substituting something, you're sacrificing having a healthy life work balance. So it's something that I did for a few years, knowing that I was only going to do it for a few years. And that was acceptable for me to, to kind of really get my career going and start to, to progress at pace. And it worked out, I guess, to some extent, because I managed to get the recognition I needed from those companies to be able to get promotions and move on to bigger and better things. Yeah. I think it happens in medicine as well, doesn't it? As junior doctors. I know I've, I, for me, long hours doesn't equate to productivity. Yeah. For me, it's the good ideas, isn't it? And having the opportunity for those to shine through and implementing stuff and showing you're implementing stuff or experimenting stuff and showing you're experimenting with stuff rather than look i've done 14 hours today well what have you done in those 14 hours well it depends what you're doing yeah i mean it, but going back to the games industry and people that are passionate about it i do think that people take advantage of that and it reminds me of of football in a funny way how people will, because they love it and are passionate and it's so much part of their life, so much that people take advantage of that in that they will inflate ticket prices, do you know what I mean? They will sell them loads of different things to make money from that passion, from the person that has that passion. And I don't think that's particularly ethical because you're taking advantage of, of, the, of that person. Yes, you can sell stuff to people, but not to such an extent. Because they will, and, and this is for me as well, you will pay whatever it takes, won't you, to go and see your team. There are, it's like that. You will work as long as it takes if, you, if you're working for a gaming industry because you're so passionate about it. And it, there's a responsibility to, to not go over the line for me in taking advantage of other people's passion. I think there's also a responsibility to not build your company in a way that is designed to to go over that line. So my experience, again, obviously not going to name employers and stuff like that, but my experience was that a lot of companies will have this sort of weird diamond shape model. So at the bottom, you've got the the influx of graduates coming in and you bring them in, as, as Jatinda said, you know, almost as cheap labor, to be honest. They're bright and enthusiastic and they'll work crazy hours and not married with kids and all that sort of stuff, or, or in rare cases, I suppose they are, but not very often. And then basically for a few years, you rinse what you can out of them and they get and you give them promotions quickly to keep them keen and interested and make sure that they don't leave. So I, that's what happened to me. It's what happened to most of the cohort that I joined with. 
But then they get to a certain point where th- there's almost like a ceiling, not, not quite a glass ceiling, but there's there's some there's kind of limits where you're you're getting a bit of bloat in the middle because you've promoted so many people so quickly. You end up with too many middle management layer people, and it becomes this weird diamond where there's a big blob of middle management in the centre, and then it tapers off again as you go up towards the upper echelons of management. So what they used to do is just have a cull every few years, effectively just just make a bunch of people redundant and get get rid of them because you'd managed to get those really productive early years out of them when they were cheap. Mm. And the whole organization was set up almost around that cycle. As cynical as that sounds, that was what I experienced. So it's it's a very, that for me is a very ethically murky thing to do in a tech company, to, to set your business up with, with almost, it was never acknowledged that that's what they were doing, but it was pretty obvious, you know, from from the way it happened. Two or three times while I was there, those those culls went on and, and those people ended up losing their jobs. Not of um Big consultancies models, aren't they, about selling and then padding with cheap resources, the thing that you've sold with some, with one or two, a, a sort of splattering of senior resources there to add some credibility. And those cheaper resources that you're padding your product delivery or project with are still charged out at, you know, 1,000 plus, 2,000 plus per day to the to the client. And that's where the, where the profit comes from. Yeah, indeed. So I think to... Draw this together, I think for me, the the main point I wanted to emphasize this week really was that building a company, which is something we're doing at the moment, I think it's very important to have an eye on ethics in terms of how you set your your model up. And sometimes there are instances where people's passion or dedication will cause them to, to go above and beyond. But it shouldn't be, for me at least, it shouldn't be something that you're routinely asking for. And the situation I found myself in with tech companies previously, which I don't want DDK to fall into, and I'm confident we won't is that that was the culture. It was routinely asked for, and there was pretty much no respite from it. I don't know what, what you guys think of that as a conclusion. I agree with you. I was actually going to ask you for a promotion soon anyway. <laughs> <laughs> you can be head of ice cream. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you. <laughs> Jacinda, did you have any closing thoughts on that, by the way? Uh, I think you wrapped it up quite nicely there. I think we, as a company, have decided that we want to have balance in terms of work and life and health so we hopefully won't fall into the same traps but then at the same time we work with a variety of different types of cultures or people or organizations that you you have to adjust sometimes to, to kind of accommodate others but yeah i think at the end of the day it's important to us and it's part of our identity so uh, yeah hopefully people will see that in terms of their engagement with us as well, long term. And that, that accommodation, having the different backgrounds and cultures, et cetera, in our organisation is what makes us really good as an organisation yeah. because we have so many different points of view Yeah, that it, it, it makes us really productive and really imaginative in terms of the things that we do. Or I like to think so anyway. <laughs> <laughs> the ethics of inclusivity is maybe something we can touch on again in, in another episode. Yeah. So recommendations, chaps, final section of the show. We need to move on to that. Uh, Will, do you want to go first with your recommendation this week? My, I recommend Andrew Ng. Have you heard of him? Yes, nope. but I don't know why. I can't remember what he does. <laughs> Andrew Ng is a is he's a businessman now, but if you read his biography, he's been involved in AI, machine learning, deep learning from the from the onset of this this new renaissance in AI that start to happen in the teenies. I think it's the teenies, it might be the noughties actually. 
AI is my nice experience. It's been going since the 1950s, I think. He is, of course, British-born. <laughs> and like others, remember Eric Teller, CEO of Google, he's moved to the States to be valued. Uh, to be fair, he spent most of his time in, in Singapore, and both parents were from Hong Kong. I think when Hong Kong was, well, in fact, I'm sure, when Hong Kong was under, under British governance. Educated in Berkeley, professor at Stanford. One of his PhD students from Stanford wrote the paper on, on GAN, which is Generative Adversarial Networks, which is a, a big deal. Think of deep fakes at the moment. That's the technology behind that. Yeah, GAN's huge, isn't it, at the moment? Yeah, yeah. Uh, that was one of his students. <laughs> He's behind Coursera and DeepLearning.ai, which delivers a whole load of quality online training. I attended their foundation machine learning specialization courses, and I, I, I highly recommend them. Okay, so that's all fair enough. But what I like about him is that, is that the projects he does must only have societal benefit. And he will kill any project if it doesn't, even if it's going to make him money, he'll still kill it. Sort of the F opposite of Jeff, Jeff Bezos. <laughs> you might say that. I mean, you probably shouldn't say that, but whether I'll edit it out or not is, is another question entirely. <laughs> keep it, keep it in. Yeah. It shows our values. So you're recommending the bloke? I'm recommending the bloke. I, I, uh, Andrew in, Andrew Ng. Looking at, look him up, my new best friend. Cool, cool. Okay. Excellent. Uh, so, my recommendation this week is High Score. So, High Score is a Netflix documentary series about video games. It seemed topical given that I'm banging on about video games this week. It's really good. I'd highly recommend that you check it out. It's, I think I'm right in saying it's narrated by a guy, who, the guy who made the worst ever video game, which was E.T. the Extraterrestrial, which nearly killed the entire games industry uh, for Atari back in the, the 80s and famously ended up buried in a landfill and then someone went and dug them up last year I think it was or the year before and actually actually found them there's a Netflix about that as well I think yeah I think there might be about the search for for the actual cartridges but no this is so this is high score this is a uh, it's a it's a series that is made with very high production values I was really surprised by how much effort they've gone to they've done like loads of stuff where they sort of rotoscope the people into 8-bit versions of themselves and have them look like they're moving around in old video games and there's lots of special effects and all sorts of things. They've done a really good job of making it like a jazzy sort of fast-paced, interesting, lively documentary. But it's all about the growth of the video games industry. So all the way through from Pong, all the way through Space Invaders, they get the guy who designed Space Invaders on, they get the guy who designed Pac-Man on, some guys from MIT who dropped out, who started making extra circuit boards for arcade cabinet machines and then spat that out into a into a huge business that I'd never even heard about. But it's legitimately fascinating, but it's also really well presented and just talks about video games all the way through. And even if you're not a fan of video games, it's actually quite a good thing to go and watch because it will help you understand i guess how and why this has become a bigger industry than the film industry the tv industry etc all put together so yeah highly recommend it high score on netflix it's a good one jatinda did you want to do your recommendation uh yeah so uh, my recommendation is an ergonomic desk it's an adjustable height uh, height adjustable desk from a company called ergo desks the actual one that i bought which is the one i'm recommended is the autonomy pro electric desk i think it's a really good bit of kit for anybody that's working from home and likes the ability to be able to stand at their desk as well as sit and it's quite an impressive looking thing as well so it fits into my very glamorous house uh, full of expensive <laughs> items and you've got to take a picture and put it on twitter you've got to take a picture your yeah. giant mtv rappers pad yeah 
<laughs> come see my crib or whatever that show was yeah. called i am so out of touch i've got to ask yeah. jk i've got to ask, the electric bit is that what's yeah. that for uh, you can adjust the height okay so you go from sit to stand do you on it yeah literally uh, yeah. Uh, you've got to post you've got to post this <laughs> it's on some very sturdy uh legs that i've got motors on obviously on e- either side and it does feel like a very solid piece of kit, almost like something out of a manufacturing facility. But it looks like it belongs in a nicely furnished home as well. So you can get it in different colours and all that kind of stuff. But um, Ergodesk is the company I bought mine from. Great. Awesome. Well, I think, chaps, that is the show. So thank you very much once again for taking part again this week. If you guys out there who are listening to us want to get in touch with us, then you can do. There's an email address, ddkpod at ddklimited.com. That's ddkpod, or one word, at ddklimited, or one word, and spelled out in full.com. If you want to tweet us, we are at ddklimited. And if you want to find us on LinkedIn, we are Dalton Day Candola. So it just remains for me to say thank you very much to Will and Jatinder. Thank you to all of you for listening. And we'll chat to you again next time. Thanks very much. See ya. Bye. And that's a wrap. That is a wrap.